0: Strychnine is a highly toxic, colorless, bitter, crystalline alkaloid used as a pesticide, particularly for killing small vertebrates such as birds and rodents. Oh, when strychnine is inhaled, swallowed or absorbed through the eyes or mouth, causes poisoning, which results in muscular convulsions and eventually death through asphyxia. Strychnine was historically used medicinally in small doses to strengthen muscle contractions and as a performance-enhancing drug. The most common source is from the seeds of the Strychnos vomissa tree. This tree. Strychnine produces some of the most dramatic and painful symptoms of any known toxic reaction, making it quite noticeable and a common choice for assassinations and poison attacks. For this reason, strychnine poisoning is often portrayed in literature and film, such as The Murder Mysteries, written by Agatha Christie. Hey doll! That was weird. Welcome to chapter five. This is the longest of all the chapters. It's Eight thousand words when most of the other chapters are about four thousand. So I will probably cut this so there will be chapter five part one and five part two. Okay where did we leave off? In the last chapter Poirot investigated Stiles Mansion or he began investigating and he interviewed some of the servants who were working in Emily Inglethorpe's room. There was candle grease, broken coffee cups, a dispatch case which we know is like a suitcase type thing for letters and documents with a lock. We found some interesting torn pieces of paper with writing on it. It might've said will. Poirot also found a discarded piece of envelope uh, that was crumpled and it said possessed written all over it. So we left on quite a cliffhanger. And yes, this time I am reading from the book. I've had the book the whole time. Uh, But I'm just worried about the sound, which is why I've been reading off my iPad. But I had a field trip, oh, see it's so noisy already. I had a field trip at work and so I used the opportunity to read chapter five and I took notes um, when I usually take notes on the iPad, but they're in the book now. But we'll see how it goes. If the sound is bad, I'm sorry, (laughs) you can see my notes. So professional. Anyway, let's get into chapter five. Chapter five. It isn't strychnine, is it? Where did you find this? I asked Poirot in a lively curiosity. In the waste paper basket. You recognize the handwriting? Yes, it is Mrs. Inglethorpe's. But what does it mean? Poirot shrugged his shoulders. I cannot say, but it is suggestive. A wild idea flashed across me. Was it possible that Mrs. Inglethorpe's mind was deranged? Had she some fantastic idea of demonical possession? And if that were so, was it not also possible that she might have taken her own life? Gosh, imagine if the book took this turn. I don't think it's going to go down this route. Talking about possession? Like, this can't be Agatha Christie's first book is about some woman who kills herself because. She's possessed, she thinks she's possessed. Cannot, no. I was about to expound these theories to Poirot when his own words distracted me. Come, he said. Now to examine the coffee cups. My dear Poirot, what on earth is the good of that? Now that we know about the cacao. Ooh la la, that miserable cacao. cried Poirot flippantly. He laughed with apparent enjoyment, raising his arms to heaven in mock despair in what I could not but consider the worst possible taste. And anyway. I said with increasing coldness. As Mrs. Inglethorpe took her coffee cup upstairs with her, I do not see what you expect to find, unless you consider it likely that we shall discover a packet of strychnine on the coffee tray. Poirot was sobered at once. Come, come, my friend, he said, slipping his arm through mine. Ne vous fâchez pas. Allow me to interest myself in my coffee cups and I will respect your cacao. There, is it a bargain? He was so quaintly humorous that I was forced to laugh and we went together to the drawing room, where the coffee cups and tray remained undisturbed as we had left them. Poirot made me recapitulate the scene of the night before, listening very carefully and verifying the position of the various cups. So Mrs Cavendish stood by the tray and poured out. Yes, then she came across to the window where you sat with Mademoiselle Cynthia. Yes, here are the three cups. And the cup on the mantelpiece half drunk That would be Mr. Lawrence Cavendish's. And the one on the tray? John Cavendish's. I saw him put it down there. Good. One, two, three, four, five. But where then is the cup of Mr. Inglethorpe? He does not take coffee. Then all are accounted for one moment, my friend. With infinite care, he took a drop or two from the grounds in each cup, sealing them up in separate test tubes, tasting each in turn as he did so. His physiognomy underwent a curious change, an expression gathered there that I can only describe as half-puzzled and half-relieved. Bien, he said at last. I think he's just happy he's not eating poison, well, I mean, obviously. Bien, he said at last, it is evident. I had an idea, but clearly I was mistaken. Yes, altogether I was mistaken. Yet it is so strange. But no matter, and with a characteristic shrug, he dismissed whatever it was that was worrying him from his mind. I could have told him from the beginning that this obsession of his over the coffee was bound to end in a blind alley, but I restrained my tongue. After all, though he was old, Poirot had been a great man in his day. I don't understand Hastings. For the first few chapters, Hastings went on about how great Poirot was, the most intelligent, greatest detective, blah, 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 I love Poirot, and now he just, he's just doubting him, he doesn't believe him, he thinks he's a silly little old man and a dandy. <laughs> breakfast is ready, said John Cavendish, coming in from the hall. Will you breakfast with us, Monsieur Poirot? Poirot acquiesced. I observed John. Already he was almost restored to his normal self. The shock of the events of the last night had upset him temporarily, but his equable poise soon swung back to the normal. He was a man of very little imagination, in sharp contrast with his brother, who had perhaps too much. Ever since the early hours of the morning, John had been hard at work, sending telegrams. One of the first had gone to Evelyn Howard, writing notices for the papers and generally occupying himself with the melancholy duties that a death entails. May I ask how things are proceeding, he said. Do your investigations point to my mother having died a natural death? Or, or must we prepare ourselves for the worst? John, on what planet was the way she died natural causes? She was writhing in agony like lifted off the bed with her by her head and her toes, and she's like, What seventy? she was shouting out her the name of her husband, she couldn't breathe, <laughs> yeah, that's how old people die, John, yes, get back to work, I think, Mr. Cavendish said Poirot gravely, that you would do well not to buoy yourself up with any false hopes. Can you tell me the views of the other members of the family? My brother Lawrence is convinced we're making a fuss over nothing. He says that everything points to it's being a simple case of heart failure. He does, does he? That is very interesting. Very interesting, murmured Poirot softly. And Mrs Cavendish? A faint Cloud swept over John's face. I have not the least idea what my wife's views on the subject are. I did not expect that question either. But, why don't you know what your wife thinks? It's your wife. Surely you've spoken. You've had time to speak. The answer brought a momentary stiffness in its train. John broke the rather awkward silence by saying with a slight effort, I told you, didn't I, that Mr. Inglethorpe has returned. Poirot bent his head. It's an awkward position for all of us. Of course one has to treat him as usual. But hang it all, one's gorge does rise at sitting down to eat with a possible murderer. Poirot nodded sympathetically. I quite understand. It is a very difficult situation for you Mr Cavendish. I would like to ask you one question. Mr Inglethorpe's reason for not returning last night. Was I believe that he had forgotten the latchkey? Is not that so? Yes. I suppose you are quite sure that the latchkey was forgotten? That he didn't take it after all? I have no idea. I never thought of looking. We always keep it in the hall drawer. I'll go and see if it is there now. Poirot held up his hand with a faint smile. No, no, Mr Cavendish. It is too late now. I am certain that you will find it. If Mr Inglethorpe did take it, he has had ample time to replace it by now. But do you think? I think nothing. If anyone had chance to look this morning before his return and seen it there, It would have been a valuable point in his favour, that is all. John looked perplexed. Do not worry, said Poirot smoothly. I assure you that you need not let it trouble you. Since you are so kind, let us go and have some breakfast. I don't really understand what this means. This is my second time reading it. So, so what is Poirot saying? He's saying, if Alfred did... Forget the latch key. That means he's telling the truth, which means he didn't kill Emily. But could it all just be a ruse? He, what, if there's a copy of the dispatch case key, key, then why couldn't there be a copy of the latch key? I think what Poirot is saying is that if he lied like if he did have the latch key alfred inglethorpe could have snuck sneaked snuck snuck snooked <laughs> he could have snuck into the house in the middle of the night and poisoned emily but here what if he didn't forget the latch key he took alfred took the latch key came back in the middle of the night Killed Emily, replaced the latch key, left again. Went back to your man's house who gave him the bed. See? Yeah. I think they're gonna to have to talk to this Tobin Tobin guy? The guy he was with that night. Anyway, let's go on. Everyone was assembled in the dining room. Do you see here's the thing. Do we think it's Alfred? Is it too obvious? Or is it a double bluff? Did double bluff exist when this book was written? Probably, right? Anyway, back to the the book. Everyone was assembled in the dining room. Under the circumstances, we were naturally not a cheerful party. The reaction after a shock is always trying, and I think we were all suffering from it. Decorum and good breeding naturally enjoined that our demeanor should be much as usual. Yet I could not help wondering if this self-control were really a matter of great difficulty. There were no red eyes, no signs of secretly indulgent grief. I felt that I was right in my opinion that Dorcas was the person most affected by the personal side of the tragedy. I pass over Alfred Inglethorpe, who acted the bereaved widower in a manner that I felt to be disgusting in its hypocrisy. Did he know that we suspected him? I wondered. Surely... He could not be unaware of the fact, conceal it as he would. Did he feel some secret stirring of fear? Or was he confident that his crime would go unpunished? Surely, the suspicion in the atmosphere must warn him that he was already a marked man. But did everyone suspect him? What about Mrs Cavendish? I watched her as she sat at the head of the table, graceful, composed, enigmatic, in her soft grey frock with white ruffles at the wrists falling over her slender hands. She looked very beautiful. When she chose, however, her face could be sphinx-like in its inscrutability. She was very silent, hardly opening her lips, and yet in some queer way, I felt that the great strength of her personality was dominating us all. And little Cynthia, did she suspect? She looked very tired and ill, I thought. The heaviness and languor of her manner were very marked. I asked her if she was feeling ill, and she answered frankly, yes, I've got the most beastly headache. Why is Cynthia ill all of a sudden? What, what is this all about? Is this a distraction? Like, is she faking it? Or somebody slowly poisoning her? Is she next? Is she gonna die? Is she, she's the one who works with all the poisons. She has to be involved sure of it have another cup of coffee mademoiselle said poirot solicitatiously it will revive you it is unparalleled for the mal de tête." he jumped up and took her cup no sugar said cynthia watching him as he picked up the sugar tongs no sugar you abandoned it in the war time eh no i've never taken it in coffee sacré murmured poirot to himself as he brought back the replenished cup Only I heard him, and glancing up curiously at the little man, I saw his face was working with suppressed excitement, and his eyes were green as cats. He had heard or seen something that had affected him strongly. But what was it? I do not usually label myself (laughs) as dense. Oh, okay. Okay, but I must confess that nothing out of the ordinary had attracted my attention. Except for the word dense. (laughs) You can, can, can you still say dance? I don't think it's been cancelled. In another moment the door opened and Dorcas appeared. Mr. Wells to see you sir, she said to John. I remembered the name as being that of the lawyer to whom Mrs. Inglethorpe had written the night before. John rose immediately. Show him into my study. Then he turned to us. My mother's lawyer, he explained. And in a lower voice, he is also coroner, you understand. Perhaps you would like to come with me? We acquiesced and followed him out of the room. John strode on ahead and I took the opportunity of whispering to Poirot. There will be an inquest then. Poirot nodded absently. He seemed absorbed in thought. So much so that my curiosity was aroused. What is it? You're not attending to what I say. It is true, my friend. I am much worried. Why? Because Mademoiselle Cynthia does not take sugar in her coffee. You cannot be serious. But I am most serious. Ah! There was something there that I do not understand. My instinct was right. What instinct? The instinct that led me to insist on examining those coffee cups. Shoot, no more now. Okay, so, it seems quite obvious, I don't know why John, maybe he is dense. (laughs) Poirot tasted all the coffee, and so according to where everybody was standing, it appears that the coffee cups have been switched, or they all contained sugar. Most likely, the coffee cups have been switched around. So Cynthia has been poisoned. (gasps) So We followed John into his study and he closed the door behind us. Mr. Wells was a pleasant man of middle age with keen eyes and the typical lawyer's mouth. (laughs) What does that mean? Like jargon? John introduced us both and explained the reason for our presence. You will understand, Wells. He added, that this is all strictly private. We are still hoping that there will turn out to be no need for an investigation of any kind. Quite so, quite so, said Mr. Wells soothingly. I wish we could have spared you the pain and publicity of an inquest, but, of course, it's quite unavoidable in the absence of a doctor's certificate. Yes, I suppose. Clever man, Bowerstein. Great authority in toxicology, I believe. Indeed, said John with a certain stiffness in his manner. Then he added rather hesitatingly, Shall we have to appear as witnesses? All of us, I mean. You, of course, and uh, Mr. uh, Inglethorpe. A slight pause ensued before the lawyer went on in his soothing manner. Any other evidence will be simply confirmatory, a mere matter of form. I see. I don't really understand why he doesn't want people to know that Emily has been poisoned. What? What? Is it just the scandal? Is the Is there shame in being murdered? I don't under- I don't get it. Uh, Is it lost in translation? Maybe that's the whole point. Maybe that's what's meant to make us suspect him? A faint expression of relief swept over John's face. It puzzled me, for I saw no occasion for it. If you know of nothing to the contrary, pursued Mr. Wells, I had thought of Friday. That will give us plenty of time for the doctor's report. The post-mortem is to take place tonight, I believe. Yes. Yes. Then the arrangements will suit you. Perfectly. I need not tell you, my dear Cavendish, how distressed I am at this most tragic affair. Can you give us no help in solving it, Monsieur? Interrupted Poirot, speaking for the first time since we entered the room. I. Yes. We heard that Mrs Inklethorpe wrote to you last night. You should have received the letter this morning. I did, but it contains no information. It is merely a note asking me to call upon her this morning as she wanted my advice on a matter of great importance. She gave you no hint as to what the matter might be? Unfortunately, no. That is a pity, said John. A great pity, agreed Poirot gravely. There was a silence. Poirot remained lost in thought for a few minutes. Finally, he turned to the lawyer again. Mr. Wells, there is one thing I would like to ask you. That is, if it's not against professional etiquette. In the event of Mrs. Inglethorpe's death, who would inherit her money? The lawyer hesitated for a moment and then replied, The knowledge will be public property very soon. So, if Mr. Cavendish does not object. Not at all, interpolated John. I do not see any reason why I should not answer your question. By her last will, dated of August last year, after various unimportant legacies to servants, etc., she gave her entire fortune to her stepson, Mr. John Cavendish. Oh, we have a motive. Money, money, money. Was not that, pardon the question, Mr. Cavendish, rather unfair to her other stepson, Mr. Lawrence Cavendish? No, I do not think so. You see, under the terms of their father's will, while John inherited the property, Lawrence, at his stepmother's death, would come into a considerable sum of money. Mrs. Inglethorpe left her money to her elder stepson, knowing that he would have to keep up Styles. It was, to my mind, a very fair and equitable distribution. Poirot nodded thoughtfully. I see, but I am right in saying, am I not, that by your English law, That will was automatically revoked when Mrs. Inglethorpe remarried. Mr. Wells bowed his head. As I was about to proceed, Monsieur Poirot, that document is now null and void. Oh! John is getting nothing? "Hien," said Poirot. He reflected for a moment and then asked, Was Mrs. Inglethorpe aware of this fact? I do not know. She may have been. She was, said John unexpectedly. We were discussing the matter of wills being revoked by marriage only yesterday. Ah, one more question, Mr. Wells. You say her last will? Had Mrs. Inglethorpe then made several former wills? On an average, she made a new will at least once a year, said Mr. Wells imperturbably. She was given to changing her mind as to her testamentary dispositions. Now benefiting one, now another member of the family. Suppose, suggested Poirot, that, unknown to you, she had made a new will in favour of someone who was not, in any sense of the word, a member of the family. We will say Mrs Howard, for instance. Would you be surprised? Not in the least. Ah. Poirot seemed to have exhausted his questions. I drew close to him, while John and the lawyer were debating the question of going through Mrs Inglethorpe's papers. Do you think Mrs Inglethorpe made a will? Leaving all her money to Miss Howard? I asked in a low voice with some curiosity. Poirot smiled. No. Then why did you ask? Hush. I think Poirot is thinking of somebody else. I think he's thinking of Cynthia. Coming for you, Cynthia. Uh, I think it's you. John Cavendish had turned to Poirot. Will you come with us, Monsieur Poirot? We are going through my mother's papers. Mr. Inglethorpe is quite willing to leave it entirely to Mr. Wells and myself, which simplifies matters very much, murmured the lawyer, as technically, of course, he was entitled. He did not finish his sentence. What is going on here? Why, is John arm twisting the lawyer? Why, why does it feel like the lawyer is going along with something? We will look through the desk in the boudoir first, explained John, and go up to her bedroom afterwards. She kept her most important papers in a purple dispatch case which we must look through carefully. Yes, said the lawyer. It is quite possible that there might be a latter will than the one in my possession. There is a latter will. It was Poirot who spoke. What? John and the lawyer looked at him startled. Or rather pursued my friend imperturbably. There was one. What do you mean there was one? Where is it now? Burnt. Burnt? Yes, see here. He took out the charred fragment we had found in the grate in Mrs Inglethorpe's room and handed it to the lawyer with a brief explanation of when and where we had found it. But possibly this is an old will? I do not think so. In fact, I am almost certain that it was made no earlier than yesterday afternoon. What? Impossible! Broke simultaneously from both men. Poirot turned to John. If you will allow me to send for your gardener, I will prove it to you. Oh, of course, but I don't see... Poirot raised his hand. "'Do as I ask you. Afterwards you shall question as much as you please.' "'Very well,' he rang the bell. Dorcas answered it in due course. "'Dorcas, will you tell Manning to come round and speak to me here?' "'Yes, sir.' Dorcas withdrew. We waited in a tense silence. Poirot alone seemed perfectly at ease and dusted a forgotten corner of the bookshelf. The clumping of hob-nailed boots on the gravel outside proclaimed the approach of Manning. John looked questioning at Poirot. The latter nodded. Come inside, Manning, said John. I want to speak to you. Manning came slowly and hesitatingly through the French window and stood as near as he could. He held his cap in his hands, twisting it carefully round and round. His back was much bent, though he was probably not as old as he looked, but his eyes were sharp and intelligent, and he belied his slow and rather cautious speech. Manning, said John, this gentleman will put some questions to you, which I want you to answer. I don't like all this servant stuff. Oh, it makes me feel uncomfortable. So rude. So condescending. Yes, sir, mumbled Manning. Poirot stepped forward briskly. Manning's eyes swept over him with faint contempt. Oh, he knows he's a cop. You were planting a bed of begonias round by the south side of the house yesterday afternoon. Were you not, Manning? Yes, sir, me and Willem. And Mrs. Inglethorpe came to the window and called you. Did she not? Yes, sir, she did. Tell me in your own words what exactly happened after that. Well sir, nothing much. She just told Willem to go on his bicycle down to the village and bring back a form of Will or such like. I don't know exactly. She wrote it down for him. Well? Well he did, sir. What happened next? We went on with the begonias, sir. Did not Mrs Inglethorpe call you again? Yes sir, both me and Willem she called. And then she made us come right in and sign our names at the bottom of a long paper under where she'd signed. Did you see anything that was written above her signature? asked Poirot sharply. No sir, there was a bit of blotting paper over that part. And you signed where she told you to? Yes sir, first me and then Willem. What did she do with it afterwards? Well sir, she slipped it into a long envelope and put it in some sort of purple box that was standing on the desk. What time was it when she first called you? About four, I should say, sir. Not earlier? Couldn't it have been about half past three? No, I shouldn't say so, sir. It would be more likely to be a bit after four, not before it. Thank you, Manning, that will do, said Poirot pleasantly. The gardener glanced at his master, who nodded, whereupon Manning lifted a finger to his forehead with a low mumble and backed cautiously out of the window. We looked at each other. So remember that little piece of paper that they found in the grate and it was like burnt and ripped and it had like I L L L L and. Is it possible that is Willem's name? And maybe he just wrote it or signed his name as Will? Why wouldn't Emily allow, why wouldn't Emily let them read the piece of paper they signed? Did they sign a will? Are they going to inherit Styles mansion? The gardeners are involved? If the gardeners are involved, maybe the maids are involved? Is there more suspects? Suckerblow. Good heavens, murdered John. What an extraordinary coincidence. How a coincidence. That my mother should have made a will on the very day of her death. Mr. Wells cleared his throat and remarked dryly. Are you so sure it is a coincidence, Cavendish? What do you mean? Your mother, you tell me, had a violent quarrel with... Some one yesterday afternoon, what do you mean, John cried again. There was a tremor in his voice. He had gone a very pale in consequence of that quarrel. Your mother very suddenly and hurriedly makes a new will. The contents of that will we shall never know. She told no one of its provisions this morning. No doubt she would have consulted me on the subject, but she had no chance. The will disappears, and she takes its secrets with her to the grave. Cavendish, I much fear. There is no coincidence there. Monsieur Poirot, I am sure you agree with me that the facts are very suggestive. Suggestive or not, interrupted John. We are most grateful to Monsieur Poirot for eludicating the matter. But for him, we should have never known of this will. I suppose I may not ask you, Monsieur, what first led you to suspect the fact? Poirot smiled and answered. A scribbled over old envelope and a freshly planted bed of begonias. John, I think, would have pressed his questions further, but at that moment the loud purr of a motor was audible, and we all turned to the window as it swept past. Evie! cried John. Excuse me, Wells. He went hurriedly out into the hall. And I think I will stop right there. Whew! Oh my, Evie is back! I knew she'd be back. Too much of a strong, well-rounded character to stay away for long. Also. Does she not have motive? She could have been in the will. She was Mrs. Inglethorpe's friend, assistant for years. It seems to me like this lawyer has a lot of opinions about the legal ramifications. Also, how does that work? Like, can you just write a will? Like, I don't don't have a will. Do you have a will? Should I make one? Like, right, no, right. Surely it doesn't become legal until it's like signed. So she wrote a will, got gave everything to the gardeners. No, wait, it was witnessed. You see, maybe if I knew stuff about wills, I would understand more. Anyway, yes, so it seems that this fight that she had made her change her will and she was going to get it authorized, who was in the will, just because the gardener signed the will doesn't mean that they were in the will. It just means that they witnessed it. I don't understand, how can it be legal if they actually didn't read the will? They just signed a piece of paper. I don't, How does this work? Can you just get anybody to sign a piece of paper and they've witnessed your will? Don't they have to read it? And thank you to my Patreons. I know sometimes I forget to mention them. Their names are on the screen now. There is more content over there. You can support me for as little as one pound a month or one euro or one dollar. I'm not too sure what it's set up in, I forget. Okay, bye.